Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the freedom we have to gather together to study your word for this nation, for the heritage that we have in this nation that is grounded upon a sound Judeo-Christian worldview. We thank you for our forefathers who were, uh, in your providence, wise, uh, much beyond their own understanding, as they established a form of government to give us such incredible freedom and a form of government that has lasted down through uh, two centuries in order to uh, continue giving us this freedom despite the many assaults on that Constitution. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have to study, to teach, to send out missionaries, to support Israel. We pray that you would continue to protect our lands, protect our borders, guide and direct our president and his advisors, also the other leaders both in the Uh, political realm and in the military realm, that we might have victory in this war against the terrorists. Father, we pray for us as a church that we might recognize our priorities to study your word, to advance spiritually, to make sure that we are growing, maturing, and applying your word consistently. We thank you for your word that it is absolute truth. We can rely on it, count on it. Because of that, it is sufficient. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning, increase our understanding of what you have done, the tremendous miracle you have provided for us in this in this Bible. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we're continuing our study this morning. This is our third lesson in a series on can we trust the Bible? This is an important subject because ultimately the issue goes to authority. And this is why most human beings want to automatically, sort of a knee-jerk reaction, reject the Bible's claims to be absolute truth, the Word of God. It's because as fallen men, as sinners, as those who are born with this inherent sin nature, this inherited sin from Adam, that we want to uh, rebel. We want to run life our own way. We have this inclination, this a predisposition to run life our own on our own terms 
and to want everything to be shaped according to our own sinful, rebellious agenda. And so the sinful human soul wants to reject claims such as the Bible makes that there's absolute truth and that there's a God to whom we're all accountable. And that's what we must understand is that when you come to this question of can I trust the Bible, there is a hidden agenda at work in the soul of the unbeliever and that, that wants them to say no. Almost without thought, they reject it. This is the outworking of Romans chapter 1, 18 and following. So often what happens is people raise the question, well, how can I know the Bible's true? How can we prove the Bible's true? And, of course, one question perhaps that if you're witnessing to somebody, you're talking to somebody, or perhaps you're dealing with a friend or even in your own soul, one question you perhaps should ask is, what for you would constitute proof? What to you would constitute absolute proof that the Bible is what it claims to be? And in many cases, the answer you would get from somebody, especially if they're being intellectually honest, is that they would, esta- they would establish some sort of criterion that would either be unreasonable or it would be invalid. Let me show you what I mean by that. See, so we want to sit here and say that we have a book. Here's the book. We have our Bible. The Bible makes certain truth claims. Claims to be the very Word of God, the revelation of God, breathed out by God. And we've gone through all the passages that make that claim. So it makes a truth claim with a capital T. Now, how do we validate that? How do we prove that? Well, we have to look at that word proof. And you have various ways in which you, we prove things in society. You have rational proofs. You have scientific proofs in the laboratory where you can demonstrate something. Uh, you have, And those proofs are proofs of empiricism. So let me put a block up here with an E in it for empiricism. And empiricism would include uh, some sort of uh, scientific proof, might include a historical proof, but in some sense what you're relying on here is some sort of uh, visual, reliable, and because we have this predisposition towards science, repeatable. See, science, science is really based on laws that are considered valid because they're repeatable. This is one reason why evolution is false, is because you can't repeat it. You can't demonstrate it in the laboratory. You can't demonstrate it in the classroom. It's simply a, uh, a, a hypothesis, a theory. So you have an empirical option. Then, second block we'll put up here, we'll put an R in the middle. And this is a rational block. And in a rational block, you're going to say what, something is appeal to logic and appear to that which which seems to your mind to fit the canons of reason or rationalism. It's like the having trouble writing on this plastic. Uh, reason. Or, in a, some sense, what, we're gonna, what, what people want to do is say, okay, I have a concept of truth, so we'll put a T up here. Let's make that a small T. I have a concept of truth, and somehow the Bible has to conform to this preconceived notion of truth, this preconceived notion of logic or reason, or this preconceived notion of empirical proof. Well, what have you done? You have said that there is a standard, a criterion, that is above and beyond the Bible, uh, 
to which the Bible must uh, must accord, that the Bible must fit with this higher authority in order to demonstrate its own truth claims. However, this is a self-defeating position. It's inconsistent because if the Bible claims to be truth and the revelation of the God who is absolute truth, remember Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. So God doesn't fit some standard of truth. Over here, let's draw... This is our, the essence box, and we know that God's sovereign, righteous, just, love, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, and V for veracity. He is truth. There is not some sort of external standard of truth to which God conforms. God says, I am truth. He is the standard. He is righteousness. He doesn't conform to some external abstract concept of morality. He is. He, what, who he is and his character defines truth, defines morality, defines what righteousness is. Righteousness isn't some abstract value system that we develop through our frame of reference. Righteousness is what God's character is. So you start there. So if we, we start with some sort of claim that we can prove the Bible through empiricism, rationalism, or some sort of, uh, abstract truth principle, then we're saying that God, ultimately what you're saying in that position is that God is, is uh, under some higher abstract principle. And if you start from that framework, you're going to get into trouble because you've elevated some element in creation, science, history, uh, visual, empirical data, uh, logic, reason, or some just abstract principle of truth, You've elevated that over God. What have you done? Instead of subordinating the creation to the creator, what you've done is you've taken some principle within creation, you've elevated that above the creator and said, for this to be true, the creator has to conform to this uh, creaturely principle. And what you've done by, by approaching it that way is you create a problem. Because now you've elevated some something in creation over God. So methodologically, you've created the same kind of problem you create when you ask, or when you're, you're asked the question, have you quit beating your wife? You know, however you answer the question, you're in trouble. Because it's an invalid question. And so we have to be careful. Now, when we look at the Bible, we ask, there has to be a way answer the question, how can we know this is true? Well, the first way we know it's true may sound to some of you like it's mystical, but it's not. When you were two years old or when you were three months old, two months old, you had no problem recognizing the authority of the voice of your father or your mother. It was a self-authenticating voice. You knew who the boss was, hopefully. Some of you, I wonder. But see, if God is who He claims to be, who the Bible claims He is, and He is the Creator of all things, and we are created in His image and likeness, then that means that when God speaks, we, man, the creature, hears Him. Despite His fallen nature, man has God consciousness. Now, just because man says there is no God and He hasn't spoken doesn't mean that, that God's voice hasn't resonated with truth within his soul. It just means he is suppressing the truth by means of unrighteousness, which is what we've studied in Romans chapter 1. This is the predisposition of the fallen nature. 
is to deny that that voice has authority. So the first way we know that the Word of God is God's Word is because it comes reverberating in our soul with the authority of God. We know it, whether we want to admit it or not, or whether we accept it or not. When God speaks, we know it's God. It's called the self-authenticating revelation of God. He doesn't need to appeal to some higher principle, some higher authority, to establish his truthfulness and his authority. It is embedded within his very voice because he is the creator. And because of that, we know that when the Bible makes certain claims, that they can be confirmed or validated. I notice how I'm being careful with the words here. Not proven because that's a word that's often overloaded with various nuances that we don't want to get into. But if the Bible makes certain claims, then there are going to be confirmatory evidences that demonstrate the veracity of those claims. And if the Bible makes certain claims about in history, because all doctrines are embedded in history, then when we get into a uh, study of history or the remains of history, which is the study of archaeology, when we get into that, we're, we're going to discover that what we find fits the picture, the scenario that the Bible paints of those cultures, those people, those situations in ancient times. We don't have to have evidence from an ancient time that specifically mentions Abraham, uh, son of Terah. We don't have to have specific things that we find in an outside the Bible that mention these events or these people, that would be nice. As that would be a higher level of confirmation. But what we have in the Bible, in archaeology is often a picture that f- comports uh, of, of the ancient world that fits with the Bible. Now, sometimes we find uh, specific things that, are, that uh, uh, relate to some event in the Scripture, and so we know that uh, from, from history that gives us a more specific validation. But the other thing that we find in archaeology, as I pointed out last time in a statement from Nelson Gluck, who is sort of the father of, of a biblical, our modern biblical archaeology. He was a Jewish archaeologist, not a, not a Christian, not necessarily even a, a conservative. But he made the statement many times that he never found anything in all of his archaeological discoveries that contradicted the Bible. And what you have on the other side is the claim from various liberals, from liberal theology. I pointed out last time that there are two presuppositions to liberal theology. One is that we're living in a closed system. That means God doesn't enter in. Their presupposition is God can't speak to man. Even if he did, we couldn't hear it, we couldn't know it. So presuppositionally, they, they reject the whole notion that the Bible could be what it claims to be because as far as their thinking is con- concerned, that's impossible. And what goes along with, with that presupposition is a r- denial of anything supernatural taking place. So from the very beginning, liberal theology approaches the data from the assumption that it can't be what, it can be any number of things. But it can't be what Christians or the Bible claim it to be. That's, that's automatically excluded. Uh, Christians, of course, will come from a viewpoint that it is possible. We haven't excluded part of the data. You know, that doesn't, we don't necessarily come to the text saying it is what it claims to be. As, after you're a believer and you've studied and you've grown and matured, you may come to that conclusion. And that may be your presupposition. 
But for many, it is a, they come to the text recognizing that it presents valid historical, his, historical data. It's important to recognize, as we closed out last time, to show that history cannot be divorced from the truth of Scripture. In contrast to, for example, uh, in Mormonism, Mormonism claims that there's this entire race of people that inhabited the Western Hemisphere and that after the ascension, Jesus appeared to them and uh, the angel Moroni was related to them. There was whole, this whole group of, of white-skinned people who lived in North America and had this enormous civilization. And they have recognized that Mormonism is based on a historical certain historical claims. So they have to prove that. They have to find some evidence of that. Interestingly enough, the largest archaeological department at a university in this country is at Brigham Young. But they've never found one thing to validate any claims made in the Book of Mormon. Not one shred of archaeological or historical validation. Whereas the Bible has thousands and thousands and thousands of things, and one thing we've seen is that liberals have frequently got had, had mud on their face for the last 200 years because they make these claims that, well, the Bible couldn't be what it claims to be because it talks about uh, Moses writing in the 14th century. And I pointed out last time that, that in the 1840s they thought writing came much later than that. And then, so then we discovered through uh, various archaeological digs at places like uh, uh, Ebla in northwest Syria, the discovery of the black stele, which we'll see a picture of in a minute, which has on it the, uh, the Code of Hammurabi, uh, the discoveries of various uh, documents in Mari and Mesopotamia show that a thousand years before Moses wrote the Pentateuch, man was writing, at least as, and that would, according to our biblical chronology, that would put us back to approximately the time of the, um, of the flood. And we would believe as, as Christians that man was writing probably all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So archaeology has confirmed that this is clearly possible, whereas liberal theology, based on their anti-supernatural bias, was claiming that these things couldn't have happened. And they built whole theories uh, denying Mosaic authorship built on these kinds of invalid assumptions. Now, Jesus makes it clear in John 3.12 that there is a relationship between earthly things and heavenly things. He said to Nicodemus, if I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, you can't divorce spiritual truth from space-time reality. doesn't matter what Ted Kennedy said. You know, his famous statement that, you know, he wouldn't trust a politician who let his uh, religion affect his political decisions. See, this is the, see, this is where you see the correlation between religious liberalism and political liberalism. Is there's ultimately this elevation of man on the throne and a denial that there is a real relationship and a reality relationship between what the Bible teaches and everyday life. And Jesus says, makes this connection. If we don't believe the historical things that the Bible mentions, things that we can verify and validate, such as the existence of the Hittites, 
the existence of, uh, of Egypt, the various people groups mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, if we can't trust just the things that we could validate, then how can we believe what he says about spiritual things that we can't validate? So there is a connection. The truth of Scripture is embedded in historical reality. And this is why many liberals hope that something will be found, something will be discovered that would invalidate uh, the Bible. But nothing ever has. In fact, discovery after discovery after discovery, as we'll see, uh, has validated the Bible. Another passage which indicates the same thing, it, it takes place in Mark chapter 2. Uh, Jesus heals the paralytic. And he says to the paralytic, before he healed him, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees react, and the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus' response was that, that what's easier, to, uh, to heal the man of his paralysis or to forgive his sins? And he heals him of his paralysis to demonstrate that as that only God, something that only God could do in terms of the realm of healing was evidence of the fact that he could also function and perform in the spiritual realm in terms of of healing or in terms of forgiving his sins. So we recognize that there's this connection. So the Bible rec, Bible clearly points out that there's a there's a connection between historical empirical evidences. Now, the evidences don't prove. We have to be careful with that word proof. They don't prove the accuracy of the historicity of the Bible, but they demonstrate or validate that there are no inherent historical flaws in the Bible. When it speaks about history, it is accurate. Now, that doesn't mean that every event in the Bible has some sort of validation in archaeology. Every year we discover more things, but we've never discovered anything that invalidates uh, what's found in the Bible. And here we have a quote for, uh, that I read last time from the New International Dictionary of Biblical Archaeology, where the authors, and this is a very good volume, where the authors or the editors state at the beginning that the purpose of biblical archaeology is to recover material remains of man's past, not to prove the accuracy or historicity of the Bible. Nevertheless, it is important to note that Near Eastern archaeology has demonstrated. Notice how he they use these words. This is very important technical language in in in, uh, in the discussion. That Near Eastern archaeology has demonstrated the historical and geographical reliability of the Bible in many important areas by clarifying the objectivity and factual accuracy of biblical authors. Archaeology also helps correct the view that the Bible is avowedly partisan and subjective. See, that's the claim of 19th century liberals, that this is a subjective book recording just man's religious experiences, his, his uh, own impressions of God. And that's, you go down the street here to the Congregational Church, or you go down to the Methodist Church, or most of the Catholic churches, or most Presbyterian churches, most of the mainline denominations, and this is their underlying presupposition. Is that the Bible is an objective revelation, it is subjective, uh, the subjective uh, record of man's experiences with something they call God. The writers of the New International Dictionary of Biblical Archaeology conclude it is now known, for instance, that along with the Hittites, Hebrew scribes were the best historians in the entire ancient Near East. 
despite contrary propaganda that emerged from Assyria, Egypt, and elsewhere. And what's part of that propaganda? I mean, how many times in a history class you may have heard that Herodotus, the Greek historian, was the father of history? Well, he's not. He doesn't write until the 5th century B.C. or, or actually, yeah, 5th century or 4th century B.C. And here we have the Bible recording history at least a thousand years earlier. So, you know, you didn't know how brainwashed you were by the pagan uh, education system. Okay, let's look at some, some things. Last time we looked at the fact that we've recovered uh, some of the mythological creation narratives, such as Enuma Elish from the uh, uh, library of King Ashurbanipal in Assyria. Along with Enuma Elish, they also discovered the, a creation epic that identified six days of creation and one day of rest. So we have that. It's not absolute uh, confirmation. Then we have the Tower of Babel, and we have various ziggurats that have been discovered. Here's a model of one. That's not, you can't see the picture very well here. But this, you know, we, we, uh, we sort of joke about this a little bit, but see, the, the, the rebellious, anti-God liberal, on the one hand, denies the historicity of the Tower of Babel, but then on the other hand, when they construct the, uh, the Parliament building for the EU, the, its architecture is based on the unfinished Tower of Babel. And this is uh, clearly seen, you can see it in the tower in the back here, it is not complete. It sort of spirals up, but it is incomplete. And that is intentionally designed that way based on the uh, Tower of Babel. So, well, on the one hand, modern man rejects the Bible. On the other hand, he continues to fulfill the Bible's prophecies. Uh, here's a picture of the black stele, which contained the Code of Hammurabi. It was written in cuneiform about 300 years prior to the time that Moses wrote the um, about 300 years prior to the time Moses wrote the law. In fact, this was discovered in 1902 by Jacques de Morgan at Susa, which is down in Persia, was the capital of Persia at the time of one of the capitals at, at the time of uh, Esther. And it had been carried down there by Elamite raiders in the ancient world. So there are many parallels between the laws in the Code of Hammurabi and the law code in Moses, which once again just shows that the, that the law code, the Mosaic law code, fits within a historical context, and it is not something that was radically unusual for that day and time. It fits the, the times, the, the time and the, and the place in which it claims to have been written. Another piece of evidence is, has to do with, with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we know from the Bible where Sodom and Gomorrah are located. They were the cities of the plains. This was the, some of the most beautiful territory in all of Israel, so beautiful that when Abraham gave his nephew Lot an option as to where he wanted to settle, because they were, they were having a problems between the, the men who worked for Lot and the men who worked for Abraham, and, and they were developing some inordinate competition between the two groups. So Abraham said, well, we, we, want, we need to have peace between your people and my people, so you all take a, take, a, take a choice. You take your part of the land. Where do you want to settle, and where do we want to settle? And we will, um, 
Uh, we will put you, you, you can have the land that you want. So he chose the most beautiful, well-watered area, which was Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, here's a modern picture of the archaeological discovery of a city near the Arabic uh, settlement called Bab Edra. That's spelled B-A-B, second one, lowercase e-d, and then the third is capital D-H-R-A, Bab Edra. And it's anything but beautiful. It's anything but well-watered today. It is in the area towards the north of the of the Dead Sea. Now, we would think that if the Bible claims that there was this tremendous destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that we would be able to go to there and find those cities and see the remains. And uh, Philo, who was a Jewish Hellenist, uh, wrote in, uh, who lived about a century before Christ, wrote that in his day, evidence of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah could still be seen. And in the early 20th century, several attempts were made to locate the cities and to find the remains. And uh, uh, William F. Albright, who was the head of the archaeological department at Johns Hopkins University and is considered the dean of uh, American archaeologists, no conservative. In fact, he expected to disprove the Bible through archaeology. But again, just like Nelson Gluck, he had to admit that he never found one thing that contradicted the pictures of, of ancient civilizations that were given in the Bible. And Albright went to the uh, area of the Dead Sea. He believed that the cities of the plains, of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities, were under the water. But he didn't have the equipment to carry out that kind of ex- exploration. This was in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. In 1960, a man named Ralph Bainey explored the sea, explored the seafloor of the Dead Sea, and he discovered the remains of trees that were still standing in a growth position at a depth of 23 feet, but no cities. Albright also discovered remains of various structures along the eastern shore of the Transjordan, uh, on the kind of the eastern to northeastern shore of the Dead Sea. This area is known in the Arabic as Bab ed Dra. And what they discovered was remains of a strongly fortified and extensively populated settlement. There were walled buildings. There was evidence of an extensive open-air settlement. There were houses. There were numerous cemeteries and scattered artifacts. All of these are signs that a large population had once inhabited this area, large uh, cemeteries indicate a large population. Now, he dated these remains to about a period from 2200 to about 3150 B.C. Now, if we look at biblical chronology, we would put the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah about uh, 2000 to 2050 B.C. So his dates made, it, made this a little older, but still pretty close. Uh, excavations were made in the late 60s and discovered walls 23 feet thick. There was a city of mud brick houses, and they also found a Canaanite temple that contained an altar and various uh, objects of worship. Well, one thing they also found was evidence that the city had been destroyed by fire. There was evidence everywhere. The entire town site was covered by a thick layer of ash, uh, many feet in thickness. 
The cemetery also revealed ash deposits, and there were charred posts and roof beams and bricks that were turned red from the intense heat. Archaeologist Bryant Wood notes that that, uh, there was a huge cemetery indicating an extremely large population that in the cemeteries there were charnel houses, and these were, we, we would call uh, call them mausoleums today. They were above-ground crypts. And here is a picture of the remains of one of the charnel houses in Bab And these charnel houses were burned from the inside out, which indicated that the fire started on the roof, burned through the roof, and then... As the fire uh, collapsed into the interior, it would burn from inside the building. They also discovered evidence that this fire and this destruction may have been brought on by an earthquake. Now, back in the 1920s, a geologist named Frederick Clapp had noted that there were, in this area, abundant deposits of asphalt, petroleum, and natural gas. And this fits the description given in Genesis 14.10, that the Valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits. This is a, 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 an oil and a petroleum type product and related to coal and other fossil fuels. And an earthquake could release these gases into the air, which then could be ignited through an electrical storm, and the entire area would just burn up. And this fits the picture given in, in uh, passages such as... Uh, Genesis 19:24. Wait a minute. Here's a picture before we get there. Here's a picture of some of the salt formations in the Dead Sea area today. Remember, Lot's wife turned around, looked back, and was turned into a pillar of salt. Genesis 19:24. We have the description: The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And then in verse 28, talking about Lot, then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And toward all the land of the plain, and he saw and behold the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. So the destruction and what we've discovered in archaeology fits the picture of the destruction that the Bible describes in Genesis uh, chapter 19. Since the 60s, other sites have been discovered, such as Es-Safi has been identified with Zoar, which is the town that uh, Lot fled to, and he begged God not to destroy Zoar, and he did not. Uh, all of the sites, they've, today they've identified each of the five cities of the plains, and all of, one, of the thing, one of the things they've discovered is that all the sites were destroyed at the same time. They all have the same ash deposits with layers up to seven feet in thickness. And in some of the towns, the depth of the ash created a sponge-like soil which would make it impossible for anyone to resettle the area. In fact, this next summer, we're just putting it together now, but this next summer, uh, Tommy Ice and I are going to co-host a, an Israel tour uh, probably the last two weeks of, uh, of June. The tentative date that we'll leave will be around the 14th or 15th of June. It'll be a 12-day trip, and one of the things that we're going to do is go to the uh, archaeological remains of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with many, many other things. So keep, stay tuned. Right now there, uh, we have the tour, tour guide putting together some of the details, and oh, within the next week or two, we should have precise dates and cost. 
Okay, another another example of how biblical archaeology has given evidence of the veracity of scriptures in David. Liberal theologians deny the historicity of David. They just reject the fact that David lived. There's no evidence of David. Nobody ever talked about David. And for the last uh, 200 years or so in liberal theology, David has been thought of to be just some mythical figure that the Jews invented in order to give legitimacy to uh, their claims. And even though much is said in Judaism and Christianity about David, these uh, modern scholars reject his existence. But in 1993, a 3,000-year-old monumental inscription, another stele written on black basalt, uh, was found at the site of Tel Dan. And it was erected by one of Israel's foreign enemies from the Syrians. And the context was the wars between Damascus and Syria under Ben-Hadad and the northern kingdom of Israel. And in those wars, Damascus was victorious. They won the battle. They took prisoners. And they erected this stele to commemorate that victory. It's an Aramaic inscription dated about 150 years after the death of David. And at the time, uh, the, at the stele, the, the uh, citation, the inscription, identifies the king of Israel as Jehoram, the son of Ahab, the, uh, the king of the house of David. So it identifies uh, the house of David. This is the first and oldest mention of David, and the first time David's name is mentioned in an archaeological inscription. And, of course, the liberals are trying to figure out how to explain that away. And so there, of course, what they say is, well, the myth just goes back further than we thought. See, this is their presupposition at work. They just can't accept uh, the Bible at all. Another uh, famous discovery in archaeology was in 1911, 1912, the discovery by uh, a German professor named Hugo Winkler, who discovered thousands of cuneiform tablets at a site in Turkey called Bagazkoy. It was located on the Halys River, 90 miles to the east of Ankara. It is a capital of the Hittite Empire. Now, up to that time, liberals were saying that, that the Bible talked about these Hittites, but there were no Hittites. There's no evidence of Hittites. No, no ancient literature mentioned the Hittites. The Hittites don't exist. The liberals were making dogmatic claims that the Hittites didn't exist, and then, lo and behold, they discover this incredible library, and they discover the capital of the Hittite Empire, and now it is well known that the Hittites uh, existed. But once again... The liberals demonstrated the failure of their own presupposition. Another famous site is a discovery in Megiddo, which, of course, is near the future Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is Har Megiddo, meaning the mountain of Megiddo. Uh, Megiddo was where Solomon, the Bible claims that Solomon had thousands of horses. It was one of his five chariot cities uh, mentioned in 1 Kings 10, 26 to 29. And archaeologists have discovered the stables there and that they would, they, the stables there uh, had thousands of stalls for the horses. So it completely comports with the picture given uh, in, in the scripture. 
Now let's look at some things in New Testament archaeology. This is where we get into a lot of battles today, a lot of issues, because for the last 10 or 15 years you've had this group of scholars called the Jesus Seminar. And they make make the papers every now and then, and their claim is that the Bible really is uh, just put together some 300 years or so after the time of, of Christ. And so Jesus may not have even existed. In fact, some of these scholars don't think Jesus existed. He was just manufactured, just just another uh, mythological invention. Marcus Borg is one of the key scholars in the Jesus Seminar. And he states, quote, The truth of Easter does not depend on whether there really was an empty tomb. See, how many times have I told you that just because you prove there's a resurrection, historical evidence, just because you prove the tomb is empty doesn't mean you've done anything. See, the fallen pagan mind just wants to twist and reshape that and say, great, there's an empty tomb. Jesus rose from the dead. Big deal. That doesn't prove anything. So you can't appeal to history or to science or anything to prove the Bible. Because the issue ultimately isn't reason. These people aren't rejecting the Bible because it's irrational, because it's ahistorical, because it's, it's uh, not scientific. They reject it because if the Bible's true, they have to submit to an authoritative sovereign God. It's a spiritual problem. So when you're witnessing to somebody, don't ever feel as if you are somehow intellectually incapable. You don't know enough. You can't answer all their questions. The problem isn't intellectual. You're not going to convince them through reason. You have to just explain the gospel, make it, make it, make sure you make it clear the Holy Spirit's the one who drives it home. But here's this scholar who makes this statement. The truth, quote, the truth of Easter does not depend on whether there really was an empty tomb. It is because Jesus is known as a living reality that we take Easter stories seriously, not the other way around. In other words, it is our belief in this living Jesus that gives validity to Easter, not the fact that there was a resurrected living Christ that gives meaning to Easter the other way around. They have it just completely backward. And he says, and taking them seriously, that is the Easter stories, he says, need not mean taking them literally. See, this is the problem. You totally divorce what you believe from, rea- from historical reality. You can believe anything. Who cares if it's rational? Who cares if it's historical? Who cares if it fits the evidence? You just believe whatever you want to believe. This is another way in which uh, religious liberalism fits in with political liberalism. It doesn't live in the realm of reality. One of the issues that they raise, that liberals raise, has to do with the uh, problem of the date of Jesus' Jesus' birth, uh, Jesus, the date of Jesus' birth. So turn in your Bibles to Luke two two. Now Luke ten uh, claims to be writing after having done a lot of uh, historical research. He's interviewed all the eyewitnesses, and now he's going to write this account. He says in verse one, Luke one one. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also. See, what he's saying is there have been many other people who have written some narratives about Jesus' life. 
But apparently these were partial, they weren't complete, and he says in verse 3 it seemed to, of chapter 1, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, uh, most excellent Theophilus, that is to write it in chronological order, that you may know the certainty the things in which you were instructed. In other words, what Luke did, probably during the time that Paul was imprisoned there at Caesarea and Luke was free to roam around, he went out and did some historical investigation and he got the data, and he interviewed all of the eyewitnesses, and he wrote a, an account of the, of the life of Christ, the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke 2.2, 2, he says that, it, that the birth of Christ occurred at the time of a census which first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So this is going to locate the birth of Jesus at a testable space-time event. So you would think that all we have to do is identify uh, from historical records when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and we can nail this down. Well, for many years there was evidence of a Quirinius who was a proconsul in Syria from about 4 A.D. to about 8 or 9 A.D., which is too late. Jesus, most scholars would agree, was born about eight, at least eight years earlier, sometime between 4 and 6 B.C. The reason there's a difference there is because of some uh, errors made chronologically when uh, uh, the uh, Georgian calendar was originally set up. So uh, this Quirinius doesn't fit, and so the liberals immediately launched into this as, see, the Bible has errors, you can't trust it, uh, etc. However, inscriptional evidence now supports the fact that there was either another Quirinius or Quirinius was proconsul at two different periods. So there's clear inscriptional evidence that there was a Quirinius who ruled as proconsul of Syria and Cilicia from 11 B.C. until after 4 B.C. So if Jesus is born between 4 to 6 B.C., then that puts him right during that time when Quirinius was governor. So, once again, inscriptional evidence makes it clear that Quirinius uh, is a historical figure, and therefore the census of Quirinius has been uh, legitimated. And that was another thing, is that liberals also claim that... Liberals also claim... I don't know why it keeps doing that. Um, liberals also claim that there were no... There's no evidence of a census in the ancient world that made people go to their hometown or their traditional uh, family uh, domicile in order to uh, be counted on the, on the tax rolls or the census rolls. However, the Oxyrhynchus papyrus, which is dated to about uh, uh, Oxyrhynchus papyrus number 255, which is dated at 48 A.D. and is in the uh, British Museum, as well as British Museum Papyrus number 904, which is dated to A.D. 104, both of these contain orders uh, and mandates that people return to their birthplace for census-taking. So once again, there's evidence within the New Testament time frame that this kind of thing took place. Of course, there's 
Uh, also, liberals challenge Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus. Of course, this is forecast from Malachi that, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, but there's evidence, historical evidence, once again, that confirms Bethlehem as a birthplace. For example, Jerome, who was the uh, early church father who translated the uh, Greek New Testament into Latin and the Hebrew Old Testament into the Latin, which we know as the Vulgate, moved to Bethlehem in AD 385. And he wrote about Bethlehem that at his time it was the most revered place in the world. Uh, another uh, writer, Paulinus of Nola, said that the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who uh, lived or, or ruled from 117 to 138 A.D., so he's just a, a few years after the close of the New Testament canon, that Hadrian, who was anti-Christian, had a grove of trees planted in Bethlehem at the site that Jesus was allegedly born, he had a grove of trees planted there for the worship of Adonis in order to specifically uh, profane the site where Jesus was born. So here you have evidence that as early as about 120 to 130 A.D., it was well known and accepted that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Eusebius in the 4th century tells about how Helena, who was the mother of the uh, Emperor Constantine, uh, was very concerned about preserving historical sites in, in uh, Israel. And she had a church built over the site of the cave, where, which was the site of Jesus' birth and the manger. So here you have a artist's depiction of the birth, of the, uh, of the, uh, nativity there. And, um, so discovery, furthermore, discovery was made of a ship mosaic on the lowest floor of the church, which read, Lord, I came, and that's dated to 100 A.D. Okay, these are just other, I've just already cited that evidence. So here's a picture of the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. Other evidence we have is from Capernaum. Capernaum literally means the village of Nahum. Nahum, the Old Testament prophet, Caper means village. So the Capernaum is the village of Nahum. Again, that's evidence of Old Testament uh, veracity. And we have the synagogue here where Jesus preached and the home of Peter where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. We have found that home. We know exactly where Peter lived in Capernaum. So again, this is evidence of the existence of, of uh, or historical events in, in Scripture. Here's a picture of the ossuary. Now, an ossuary is, looks like a small casket, and it is a bone container. They would take the bones of the dead person and put them in an, in an ossuary. And this is the ossuary of Caiaphas. And what you have up here in the, uh, is the Hebrew of the inscription on the ossuary that this is Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest who condemned Jesus. So here you have another ossuary. Uh, this is the one of Caiaphas, and this is the inscription over here on the on the right, on the end of the ossuary. And then we also have evidence of Pilate and his existence. For many years, it was denied that Pilate actually existed, that once again that was made up. That was the claim of the liberals. Pilate lived in Caesarea Maritima, which was a coastal town, 
1961, a team of Italian archaeologists were excavating at the Roman theater in Caesarea Maritima, and they discovered a two-foot by three-foot slab, which is now known as the Pilate Inscription, and you have the picture on the overhead. It was written to commemorate Pilate's construction and dedication of a Tiberium, that is, a temple that was constructed for the worship of Tiberius Caesar, uh, the Roman emperor during the time that Pilate was governor over Judea. And the Latin inscription gives the name as Pontius Pilate, and this stone was later used in the construction of of another building, of a Roman theater. So this gives historical evidence that Pontius Pilate was a live and well and was a governor of Judea, as is stated in Luke 3.1. Furthermore, we also have evidence of, of a crucifixion. This is from a period some 30 or 40 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And what was discovered was a heel with a 7-inch long nail through it, and it was still attached to a piece of wood. And here's a picture of this uh, heel bone with a nail sticking through it. And up to that point, up to 1968, there was no evidence of a crucified person in, in Israel. And so the liberals once again were claiming that, oh, there's no evidence that there was crucifixion in Israel, therefore this couldn't have happened. But this reveals the uh, historicity and shows how horrible crucifixion was. And in this artist's depiction, you see how the feet were nailed to the cross. They were brought upright and the nail was driven through the heel as as the, the heel was placed on the side of the cross and then the nail was driven through a piece of wood and into the cross itself. Many other discoveries have been made which confirm the descriptions and events in Scripture. For example, the Pool of Bethesda with its five uh, porticos mentioned in John 5.2 has been discovered. Uh, There's been the discovery of an altar to an unknown god in Athens which uh, confirms what's told about Paul's visit to Athens in Acts 17.23. So biblical archaeology demonstrates uh, that the Bible is consistent with with what we know of historically. There's never been a contradiction. Now next time we're going to look at some internal evidence of, of Scripture. Uh, If the Bible is what it claims to be, it's going to show internal consistency and internal accuracy. One of the greatest evidences of the divine origin of Scripture has to do with prophecy. Not prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet, but the incredibly detailed prophecies given in the Old Testament many hundreds of years before they were fulfilled, but they were also fulfilled during Old Testament times. So we will look at some of these prophecies uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have a, uh, a Bible that is confirmed in history, that we don't believe this despite the evidence, but that there's tremendous evidence that, which supports all the claims of Scripture. That unlike any other world religion, we have, a, uh, we have the truth that is grounded and embedded in historical reality. Father, we thank you for the fact that you've revealed these things to us. You've given us many infallible proofs as stated in Acts chapter 1 to demonstrate your veracity. We thank you above all for our salvation, that you've loved us enough to send your Son to die on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here 
this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need do is simply believe that Jesus died for you, that he died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sins, and that when you believe that, you are instantly uh, regenerated, born again. You receive the imputation of perfect righteousness and declared righteous, and you can never lose that. You will have eternal life. Father, we thank you for these things and pray that we would be challenged by the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.